and welcome to the Punch Like a Girl podcast. I'm Nathaniel. And I'm Liz. And this is the show where we take a look at graphic novels and trade collections with female protagonists. Uh, before we get into this one, I am going to apologize. It is quite possible the audio quality on this episode is not going to be up to even my mediocre standards. Uh, my usual <laughs> microphone is dead at the moment, so I'm having to use basically a secondary one. Um, and hopefully it won't turn out awful. Uh, but this time we are taking a look at the first collected volume of Alias, which of course is the debut title for the character Jessica Jones, who's now a big Netflix star. Yes, she is. And that's, I think, for both of us prior to reading this, that was mainly where we knew her from, because we'd both watched that Jessica show. Jones. And that is my favorite of the Netflix Marvel series. It's mine as well, and that's and that's worth noting. Um so we'll be we'll definitely be mentioning that show a fair amount. Yes, and and it's worth saying that this this one I think probably even more than is normal. We're gonna have to really dig into a lot of plot specifics, not only of this book, but of the show. So consider that a spoiler warning for both. Mm-hmm, um, definitely. And also, um, normally we try and keep things pretty family friendly uh, for this show, and. <laughs> And while we're not going to use the fact that this is uh, an adults-only <coughs> title uh, as an excuse to just start swearing left and right, just the subject matter kind of means this is this one's going to be a little more adult-oriented than some of our episodes are. So if um, if this is one if this is a show that you listen to with your kids all, because I know some of our listeners do, um, be warned of that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So. Alias, um, which had its debut in 2001, mm-hmm. uh, with story by Brian Michael Bendis, art by Michael Gatos, uh, and he is just credited with art, which means he probably did um, penciling and inking, uh, and colors is by Matt Hollingsworth. Um, there are a bunch of other credits, but those, I think, are the ones we really need to mention. The, uh, the collected volume that we have is the first eight issues, and it basically covers two cases that Jessica runs into because she is, of course, a private detective with some basically low-end superpowers, at least as far as they get put on display here. Mm -hmm. Um, And she, and it deals with two different cases that she has to handle. The first is um, a woman coming saying that she is concerned about her sister um, and she wants her found. And when Jessica goes and to track down the supposed sister, what she ends up unintentionally creating is a surveillance tape showing the secret identity of Captain America. Oh, no. Which wasn't public knowledge at the time that this, uh, within the Marvel Universe, it wasn't public knowledge yet at the time this, this comic book happened. So she had basically been tricked into creating this surveillance tape, and then she sort of goes down the line of who hired the person who hired her and to eventually deal with the uh, the guy who was... Boy, it's sort of weirdly complicated. Basically was trying to smear um, superheroes in an effort to... Um, smear a, a, ver- a political candidate? Well, no, he was trying to boost a political candidate. He was trying to oh, smear the president, president. Okay, because yeah. the president was so closely linking himself to, to costumed heroes. Okay. Yeah, I was trying to remember. You read this more recently, so I'm... I did. All the political... There's a lot of political intrigue in this going on, and a lot of 
you know, what are their links to, what are the politicians and how do they treat the superheroes? Are they, you know, trying to, you know, how are they, and there's, it's, it's very complicated. The, the first case is, yeah, the second one's a bit more straightforward. It is. At least yeah. as far as plot goes, I think it's probably emotionally a little bit more complicated. Yes. So the second one, she is hired by a woman who claims to be the wife of Rick Jones. Now, Rick Jones, because I'm not going to assume listeners know who this is, he's basically been like a perennial sidekick across Marvel. And that is the name of his book. Yes. Uh, and apparently he wrote an, uh, an autobiography called Sidekick. Tell but he, he was a sidekick to the Hulk, he was a sidekick to Captain America, he was a sidekick to Captain Marvel um, uh, before he died and his mantle got passed to Carol Danvers. And um, so she's hired by this woman who claims to be his wife and says that he has been missing for several weeks. And as she tracks down what she actually, well, she encounters, she finds Rick and he's like, he's playing like a small kind of local gig, playing, you know, playing guitar and sort of feeding off of groupies and attention and he's he's very rambly he's rambling about how he can't trust anyone that there's scroll stuff going on um because rick has has history with the Cree scroll war which i think was in the 70s uh that's real time the marvel timeline is a weird thing to try and follow <laughs> um but but she they kind of go back and forth and she ends up spending a very very long night with him um, where she basically gets pretty much no sleep, and <coughs> yeah, she's just kind of chasing him away around because he keeps running off and like is very paranoid and yeah. And by the time she actually gets a hold of somebody at uh, Avengers Mansion, uh, which it ends up being Jarvis, who's the house butler, um, she finds out that Rick Jones is in Los Angeles and perfectly fine, and this guy that she's been hired to find and has been tailing around as a guy who looks a lot like him but is not him and has been claiming to be him and it basically explains a lot of the guy's really squirrely behavior mm -hmm. um and then there's there's sort of some some notes wrapping up her feelings about everything that happened but those are the major plot beats and there's a lot of other incidental stuff with specific characters that i'm sure we'll get into as we dig into it a little bit more. Like Carol Danvers. Yes. Yeah. So I, I guess as a point of comparison, um, for people who um, are more familiar with the TV show, the TV show, as far as this initial um, volume of the comic book, it borrows almost none of the plot points from this initial volume. Like, there's a couple of things, but by and large, it's dealing with a lot of stuff that happens later in Alias. Mm-hmm. Um... There's no Kilgrave, guys. No, I'm gonna no, say he, that straight up. I was a little sad that he, there was no Kilgrave. He does not factor into the Alias comic book for a while. Um, but in terms of some equivalents, uh, Carol Danvers in the comic is basically filling a version of the role that Trish um, was in the TV show. Um, and the character of Malcolm does carry over. Um, he's, he's like a 17-year-old white guy in the comic. Uh, as opposed to the the black twenty something crackhead that he is in the yeah. uh, TV show, so there's been some changing there. But that character does repeat. Uh, Luke Cage factors into both in a mm -hmm. similar fashion, but kind of approached differently. Yes. Uh, but so that's sort of the major points to hit before we start getting into specifics. 
general thoughts from you on that? Um, just the thing overall. Um, one thing I noticed right away and I struggled with a little bit at first was there are lots of panels per page and like lots of them really cut down. So that, that made me struggle to read a little bit. And s sometimes they're for a really good purpose. Like there'll be someone gabbing on and on and on one of the clients and Jessica will just kind of stay deadpan and silent and she'll get more out of them that way. But um, it just made it a little difficult for me to read the way the panels were set up. Well, I suppose I'll get this out of the way so it's done and I can get it out of my system. Yes. I hate this art. Oh, okay. Capital H hate this art so much. Ooh, ouch. I oh, <laughs> it, I had to, I had to really disconnect in my brain the way the art and the writing were working to realize that I do like a lot of the writing in this, but I, I, because at first I was like, I'm not enjoying this book, but when I broke down the reasons why, I'm like, it's the art. I hate this art so much. Um, so I don't know Michael Gatos as an artist. And so far as I can tell, he hasn't done a lot uh, of note outside of this title. But what I can't figure out is, like, because I tried to just get a gauge of what the community at large thought about the guy um, in terms of his artwork. And by and large, what I could find, you know, basically everyone knows him through this, if they know him at all. A lot of comic book fans don't, if they haven't read this. Uh -huh. And everyone seems to think he's great. And I don't, I don't understand. There's... I get the theory behind a lot, a lot of what is being done with the art, but there's basically two main things. Well, it, it basically comes down to one thing that is severely overused that completely kills it for me. So the art styling, I eventually got used to. I'm not a huge fan of the art styling because faces are not consistent. Because mm. oftentimes they are so heavily shadowed or whatever else. It is really difficult to identify characters I made on a note site. of that. Like, Jessica was like, oh, I couldn't see someone. I was like, no one could see him. I couldn't see the person you're talking about because their face was heavily shadowed. And, like, some of the fight scenes, I thought about your criticism of, like, defenders and stuff. And I was like, I don't know really what's going on because it's so dark. Like, I, I get that it's a dark scene, a night, but I illuminate some things a little bit. Stop yeah. shadowing everything. And, and I... And so many, so many panels. I do get the reason why there's heavy shadowing, because it's going for a noir feel. I know. But I've had this problem with other comic books that are trying to be noir as well. Um, my friend Ryan Daly, who has a couple of shows on this network as well, he lent me um, Fatale which is supposedly this very, you know, well-received sort of cross between a, bit, a little bit Lovecraftian kind of stuff and noir. And it was a lot of heavy shadows there too, but the problem, I think heavy shadows can work if you're actually dealing with superheroes in costumes where I can find a clearly identifiable thing about them. But when you keep heavily shadowing what are basically just normal people, 
they become really hard to identify because they don't have the clear identifying mar markers of a symbol on their chest or a mask that I immediately know who that is. Mm -hmm. And you can get away with it in film, which noir basically pulls its in, you know, that's, that's the home noir genre is film. You can get away with it because you can key in on a voice even if you can't see a face. But ultimately, the reason I hate this art is how often the tech, how much of this art is done by photocopier. So you mentioned how Jessica, you know, will just maintain a look while somebody rambles. Mm -hmm. And that's true. But flipping through this, it, yeah, it I'm is. I'm noticing it now too that you've mentioned I would this. say about half of the pages have at least one panel that just is a flat-out repeat of an earlier panel. Like, maybe they changed whether or not a character's eyes are open or closed, but otherwise it is literally the exact same panel over and over With again. With different writing. Yes. Oh, yeah, that is obnoxious. And it is... And it is across, and it's not just done with Jessica, and that's the other thing. If it was something where they only repeated Jessica, so it was making clear that she like wasn't altering her expression, that would be one thing. But they do it with oh, with yeah. everybody, so it's it's something that is just being done across the book, mm -hmm. and it drives me crazy because it makes the characters. Well, first of all, as soon as you see it. You can't unsee it, and it just makes for annoying reading. And then, in addition... Now I'm more annoyed. <laughs> and in addition to that, it makes the characters kind of inscrutable, because you're having full conversations between these two characters, and neither of them has an expression that's changing. And again, it works better on film. And, and again, I understand with noir, oftentimes you have characters where you don't see a lot of deep emotional change in their face, but you can still catch inflections in delivery of lines and reading the words on the page, you can't do that. So when it's translated to a comic book, you have to give us more facial expression to make up for the fact that we can't hear tone of voice. Mm -hmm. Facial expression is how we key in to figuring out the tone of voice. And when it never changes, I can't figure out where the hell anybody's coming from. Mm. So I, I think I'm done ranting about that, but I, I did, I really, really loathe this artwork. And it's not a style issue, though I don't love that, but that's not the reason I hate it. But I, oh God, hate it. <laughs> I can tell. Um, I did not hate it as much. The paneling was more the issue, but now that you point out that they just copied it, that annoys me and I can see how I was like, why isn't this changing like what's uh it's and it doesn't make it easier to read or understand especially because there are a lot of characters in this book a lot of like n i wouldn't even say they're secondary characters there's, they're just there's her a lot following of incidental up on a case you know so she has to go in one direction and find this and then like that leads her in another direction and she meets with someone else and it's and then there's the whole political part of it, and like, it's a little mind-boggling and confusing, and like, the artwork does not help that, to no. understand it. No, I think having, at least for my part, expelled that, I think I can lay off the art and we can talk about the story a bit more. Um, there are, like, some notable differences, again, in terms of 
sort of how Jessica fits into this universe versus the Netflix show. Um, can I can I make a point about some key di- key similarities though between the um, the first episode of the Netflix show and this book in that they start the same way, which is basically she's dealing with like a very difficult riled up misogynistic client and she throws them through the window and I like that as a start in both cases <laughs> like that just kind of sets the tone right off and like through the window um she also hooks up with Luke Cage in, in each of these in the beginning yeah sort of like although sort of the difference with the that that the dynamic of that relationship is part of what speaks to how she fits into the universe differently because in the show she and Luke hook up basically after having met in person for the first time. Mm-hmm. Whereas here they already know each other because Jessica actually did make a go of it as a costumed hero. Mm-hmm. Named Jewel, I named, believe. Yes, named Jewel. But she didn't last long and she washed out quickly. And in, in this volume, we don't get the details on that as to why. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that she is not... She's kind of close with Carol Danvers, uh, who's Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. But other than her, she's she has ties to the superhero community. They know who she is. Yeah, but she's not really in there. No. And part of what I like Perfectly. about yeah, part of what I like about that in terms of this book. Um, and if I had read this before seeing the show, it's something I probably would have missed mm-hmm. that it's not there. Um, but what I like about it is that it gives, um, it really gives you the sense of that living at the ground level, living in the shadow of these people. Because there are stories that try and do that now and then, in both Marvel and DC. Mm-hmm. They're really hard to get right and they're really hard to make in- interesting because who wants to read about a quote-unquote normal person in mm-hmm. a world of superheroes? But Jessica is just abnormal enough to make her, her an interesting character for a number of reasons and she does have those ties there but she's still barely on their radar she if she wants to get a hold of the avengers she has to go through the general phone mailbox system and leave a message and wait to get called back mm-hmm. and like she can't get through the door at uh avengers mansion she can't get an appointment with reed richards even though she has met all these people and i think it does a good job of of showing kind of the frustration of being so close to these people who do amazing things and are amazing people, but you can't actually connect with them. And hold the answers that she needs, but yeah. she can't quite reach them and like solve all these like loose ends more quickly and tidily because she can't, she I, can't communicate with them. She can't get a hold of them. Yeah, I think, it, I think it does a really good job of illustrating how frustrating it must be to like to because in Marvel almost all the superheroes are based out of New York. How frustrating it must be to live in New York, know that there are all these superheroes, and that they could help whatever your problem is, but you can't actually get you can't their help. Them. I yeah. think I think it it finds a way to illustrate that frustration in a way that that works really well without beating the point over the head either. Um, so that that's something that kind of gets. I don't want to say lost in translation. It was a deliberate choice not to bring that into the Netflix show because they really wanted to focus on Jessica's damage, Mm -hmm. which this book only really hints at in the vaguest terms. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of commentary on fame and how we look up to people and the fact that Rick Jones, or the fake Rick Jones is impersonating someone else. And, like, there's a lot of commentary on media and fame and that cycle. That is really interesting. And I'm still mulling it over and puzzling it out. And it, I kind of want to read more um, and know more about that and her connections to this world and why she left um, being a costume superhero. So I'm very intrigued by that. Um, there's some segments that are shown on the television to explain things. And not only is the artwork frustrating, but it's got that, like, grainy television look with the artwork. So <laughs> it makes it even more frustrating. So I was like, even though this storyline intrigues me um, and the video surveillance it's even harder to see things, so you're kind of losing my interest here because of that. Um, what else did I want to say? I just, like, I, re I like the character of Jessica in this, too, because she is a little more vulnerable and down on herself and a little more, it's just uh, kind of, like, out, not out there, but just, like, She's not quite as She's not as shut tough off. and sarcastic and as, like, speedy with the deliveries. She's a little quieter. She's a little yeah. more, like, hang back and observe. But she's also, she's still volatile and stuff. And yeah. she's still tough, but it's, there's more vulnerability to it. Yeah. Which I liked. But I also really, really, really love Kristen Witt Ritter. And I think she's part of what makes Jessica Jones so great. So I like, I really like both interpretations of the character, I think. They are both. And I think it's a case of the things that they either chose to flat out do differently or to tackle in a different order were all, were all infor informed choices. I feel like all the differences between the comic book and the, the TV series were made for reasons that make sense. So like... With what you said, with how shut off she is in the show, because she has much thicker walls built up between her and other people. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in this, it's kind of there's a little there's a final note with the Rick Jones story that's sort of pointing to the fact that she wants to be able to believe and connect with people. Mm -hmm. It just she's, it just bites her in the out. ass when yeah. she does. She is reaching out a little more, I feel like. Yes. And but with the show, it makes sense that she's not because they put the focus much more starkly on her trauma and her PTSD from what she went through with Kilgrave. Mm -hmm. So if you're making that the focus, it makes more sense to have her be harsher than she is than she is here, where we're not gonna get that that insight to that event for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I had some notes that she's acting more scared and nervous, and you can kind of see that play out more in the book. And, like, the, like, paranoia that someone's going to come get the tape is very prevalent in the first half of the story. And, you know, like, who who's after it? Like, she's a little more paranoid, which she gets kind of with Kilgrave. It's been a while since I've seen the whole, se that whole season, but, um... I just felt it was, the vulnerability was more prevalent in the book. Yeah. I think with Netflix, her, any paranoia she had was based around him specifically. Mm -hmm. Whereas this, um, I get the feeling that her paranoia it ha pretty much has to do with anything that just ties back to superheroes in general. Like she left that world. So when she finds herself pulled back to it, because she now has a tape of Captain America, like that sets off a lot of paranoia alarms as opposed to them all being centered on a single individual. Yes. 
um, she does, yeah, she's got some nervous energy, so, especially around that issue. I kind of wanted to touch on some of the, the other Marvel characters who appear in this, because sort of talking the history of the publication on this, mm -hmm. this was the first series to be produced under the Marvel Max line, which, which was their um, series of adults-only books. Mm -hmm. um, so it was actually pretty daring to make any direct ties to any Marvel characters. The much safer thing would have been to have her exist much more in a bubble and not tie very explicitly adult material to the mainstream characters at all. And I... Huh, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. Well, that said, I suspect that's a... That, um, from a publishing standpoint, is a big part of why, say, the Avengers are always out on call when she tries to get a hold of them <laughs> and why she can't get a hold of the Fantastic Four. Like I said, it does, it does actually serve a purpose in terms of illustrating a vibe of the thing, but I'm pretty sure that's probably also a publisher's mandate. Like, if you're going this hard with it, as few direct connections as you can get away with, please. She does solely Captain America a little bit, so. Yeah. Well, not, yeah, yeah, not a little bit. The not fact that he's, you know, well, she, like, he gets called some pretty nasty names. She rolls her eyes at him when she meets up with him and everything. Like, he himself is still Captain America, but the fact that he's seeing this woman in secret and there's this whole you know, secret tape that she has of his identity. So... Yeah. Um, and a little bit with Sidekick, too. Um, yeah. That whole book. Rick Jones' tell-all. So, so the, uh, like the other characters that turn up, we mentioned Captain America, who, who does actually have an interaction with Jessica. Uh-huh. Um, For the Defenders, we have Matt. Yes. Um, which I liked his appearances in this a lot, and it made me happy because I really liked their chemistry and their interactions in um, in Defenders. So I was very happy to see him here and yep. interacting with her. I just, I like their relationship. I like that he's trying to protect her, and she's just very wary and, you know. It's also kind of funny because it's very obvious in the book, um... That he knows who she is, but she does... Like, she probably knows Daredevil, but she doesn't know that he is... She, she hasn't made the connection, yeah. So, yeah, that was fun. Uh, the, uh, so it was similar to that, too, is, like, the first time she meets him as as Matt. Um, he's trying to save her. And, like, comes in when she's being interrogated. And yep. he's like, well, look, <laughs> we're gonna shut this down. What so. else have we got? Oh, we've got Mountain Man Marco, who is a, I'd call him probably a third-tier Spider-Man villain. He's basically just a, he, he is exactly what he sounds like. He is just a huge guy who is a evil bugger. Mm. Throw down there. Yep, she just beats the ever-loving crap out of him. Go, Jessica. Yep, uh, and then there's a couple of very small appearances. We, I think we mentioned Jarvis, the mm -hmm. uh, the Avengers butler. There's, He's on the phone with her, finally yep. returning her call. There's We get a vocal appearance from Clay Quartermain, who's with S.H.I.E.L.D. So, and and they're, quite, they're, they're also kind of nicely spread out across the book. It's mm -hmm. not like they're all loaded into one place. It's like, here's all your Marvel connections. Okay, now we're not doing that anymore. I liked how it was done. I liked the name dropping, but it wasn't too much, and it made sense according to her world since she was formally tied to all these people and has now walked away but needs answers from them now. Um, and I like that she's friends with Carol. I like her interactions with Carol. At first, 
like the first meeting they have is kind of like when the whole Captain America thing's going down. They they're not getting along, but then later on they have lunch, and it's actually nice because you can tell Jessica like got her act together and like showered <laughs> and wore nice clothes and like washed her hair and I was so proud of her. Like <laughs> she put down the bottle and got in the shower and like so proud of Jessica. It was like she's trying, yay, and she's she's going out with her friend and maybe she can get it together. Um, I also some of the other stuff I like with Carol is that you do get the feeling that that, that there's some specific history that happened between them that we're not getting quite yet. <laughs> and so you get the feeling like when they have that lunch, like these are two people who are capable of being friends, mm -hmm. but they're not quite comfortable enough with each other to be as much of friends as they probably could be. Mm, yeah. Um, whether you want to read that as they were better friends and now they're trying to get back there, or maybe they were never as good as friends as, as they could have been given how well they, they sort of, are with each other, mm -hmm. but there's some there's something throwing it off in a in an intriguing way. I think. Yeah. Well, at least the effort is being made. Yeah. You know, like I think that sometimes happens. Like when you grow apart, like the lunch date with a friend. Like let's make the effort and let's make this happen. And this is we're gonna set it up. And it's a little strained, but like, you know, it's it's oh, getting it's been back. Forever. Into, let's do lunch. Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> and it's kind of cute that they're having that. Um, and their little sunglasses. I so think you can't read their expressions once again. <laughs> well, you know, besides the fact that repeated panel, repeated panel, repeated panel, <laughs> repeated panel with mouth slightly open, repeated panel oh, with, yeah. with eyebrows raised. Oh, wow. What, what, a, what a massive shift in emotion. Um, we have I'm like a, riling you up about this artwork. <laughs> we haven't really talked too much about Luke Cage. Oh, speaking of, so they have a whole conversation about Luke and who he's been with and yes. all this stuff. And so Luke gets labeled a, I believe it's a cape chaser. Cape chaser. Um, basically that he really enjoys hooking up with costume superheroes. And it's worth pointing out sort of where Luke was as a character in Marvel at this point. Because Luke... Luke Cage's history is also kind of interesting because, by and large, to the general comic reading public, he was a joke for a long time. Because um, he got introduced very clearly as an attempt to capitalize in comics on black exploitation being real big in cinema. Mm -hmm. And then once that movement kind of ended, they really didn't seem to know what to do with him. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that they didn't know what to do with him made many of his appearances rather awkward. And then sort of like black exploitation as a movement is kind of getting a reassessment now, like in the last eh, five, ten years or so. Mm -hmm. But like the 90s through the early 2000s, it was something really sneered at. Like, oh, God, how awful was that? And because he was born out of that, he was mocked a lot by oh. comic book readers. So... His appearance in here is interesting because now we would think Luke Cage, wow, they're letting one of the real sort of premier characters be in here and he's a little bit of a jerk. He's like, he wasn't a premier character when he made his appearance in this thing. And I think actually in many ways, because um, he comes back later in the series, that his appearances here kind of rehabilitated his image with comic book readers a bit who were able to take him more seriously. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's not the, not quite the smooth, like, Luke Cage of the series. I mean, he's, he, being a ladies' man is part of his deal in both situations. It is, but, but it, I feel like it's dealt with different, differently. Like, here it's... It feels more like he's he is a player playing the game. In, where, in the book. In the yeah. book, whereas in the show it comes across a bit more as... You know, he he does, you know, he's probably with different women because he needs that connection, not because he's just looking to... Yeah. And also, I have to say, in the TV series, he has some good taste. Like, we're talking... <laughs> spo spoilers abound here. We're talking Jessica. We're talking Misty. We're talking Claire. Like, his wife, you know, like... Like, good job. Like, you are landing, like, the finest women in the Marvel universe. Like, good job. I mean, and the actor who plays him is just um, very compelling. He, yeah, no, he was a, gr he was a great find. So you don't get him. any of that here. You just kind of got a little one-night stand with Jessica, and then they gossip about, she gossips later with Carol with him, and they kind of shame him a little bit. And, yeah. And that, that made me miss Luke from the TV series because I really adore him. Now, here's something I want to ask you about just because I don't know if it was something you realized. How was it for you that the president in this was the actual real president at the time being George W. Bush? How did it? Oh, yeah, now I noticed that. You're right. It is him. Yep. Because that's one of the things about Marvel is they don't do, because it is to a certain degree set in the real world, they use real cities like Los Angeles New and New York, as opposed to DC, which has Metropolis and Gotham and Star City, and they, they sometimes they do real world cities, but not the way Marvel does. Marvel does ha has had running that whoever is president at the time is the president in the Marvel universe as well. Yep, I guess that is. I didn't really. Fa I guess I didn't really notice because I'm too embroiled in like current politics, and, like yeah, <laughs> not really thinking about it. You Several know, presidents back. I'm actually. It is I'm curious. It's. I guess it's. It's, it's, it's definitely not, him. It's not the best illustrations, but now that you mention it, yeah, okay, I can see him. Well, I, what I was gonna say is, I'm now gonna be really curious as to whether or not they have depicted Trump in the Marvel comics yet. I, I I might actually. I might actually look that up. No, it doesn't count as research because I'm not doing it for anything. <laughs> but. Um, I'm going to have to check that because I'm going to be curious now. Okay, well let me know because I'm curious too. I will. Uh, I'm trying to think if there was anything else I wanted to hit. I, I find the progression of this interesting. Again, sort of to compare it to the Netflix, which was very much laser focused on Jessica and her damage and her trauma. And the Kilgrave plot. Yeah. This is much more about letting the case play out and letting how she deals with what happens and it reveal things about her as time goes on. Mm -hmm. um, which makes sense, because this is obvious, This is a bit more serialized, because when they did the Netflix show, for all they knew, that was the only season they were going to get to do. So they had mm -hmm. to tell something pretty complete and purposeful. And they did it quite well. Which they did. I think they did it excellently. And I think it makes sense that they honed in on a major villain and because I think like spending time with this like I remember you saying with um 
with the Marvel show, with the season, you thought that it was a couple episodes too long. And I feel like yeah. if they would have done more of this, like, mini case thing and her following up on it, as much as I like that, and I love, I love that part of Jessica, is that, you know, she is um, sleuthing around and detective and finding out these, like, unpleasant things about people. And, like, I really thought that factored well into the Defenders as well. I think for a whole series, I think it makes sense to have, like, a compelling villain and the effects on her, because I think that was so much of Jessica Jones, the TV show, was all about the emotion behind it and the PTSD, and it was, as a woman, it was like, oh my god, someone... Someone finally created a television show, a superhero television show that we are drawn to and can relate to and understand. And that was just really powerful. So, Yeah. So I, I think I've hit all the major things I wanted to be sure to get out about this. I mean, as, as much as I hate the art... And again, that's a capital H hate. I will grant that as I worked my way through the book, I never grew to like it, but it bothered me less because I was able to basically kind of zone out on the art and focus on the writing. And I think the writing is really strong in this. I think in the writing is more compelling, yeah. Yeah, in terms of characterization, the way plots play out, the way the that they rev they give you little insights into Jessica as you go. I think the writing is incredibly strong on this. Strong enough that I was able to just shift my focus away from the art as I went along so that by the end, I wasn't getting as upset by it as I was when I started. Like, the, I think the part any... that almost broke me was the police interrogation. Oh, yeah. I just... Oh, oh, where she just, yeah. This, I'm, oh, oh you're my right. God. See, this is what I'm saying, is there is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, double. times 2, double that yeah. on two pages. Like, that's way too many panels. That's, that's 34 panels across two pages, and most of them are repeated. Not always in a row, but still repeated. Like these little strips. Yeah. Up and down of, like, faces, like, shadowed faces. You can't see her eyes or really his for most of them. And the same shadowed face, because there's, there's that one one, two, three times. We've got this one one, two, three times. That one one, two, three. Yeah. Minimum three repeats for every actual facial expression. The artwork, in a way. I mean, I... Given the style that this is done in, I would tend to think that this is probably an art style that takes longer to do than standard comic book art, which might be part of the reason that they opted for that. Uh. But it does drive me so crazy that I'm like, just find a different way to do it. Okay. Yeah, it's frustrating. But it, too many panels, too many shadows. That's what we have to say about the artwork. Yeah. Too many, too many repeats. But again, I I do believe that the writing is strong enough that I I would still recommend reading it. Um, I the think cover is cool. The, and actually, the back, the covers pictures. are very cool because they have a color uh, cover gallery at the back. It's a different artist for the cover. That uh -huh. that those were done by hang on, David Mack. Um, uh, and also they're kind of blurry and like almost like watercolor type style like they. Things. 
some of them, and it kind of rem reminds me, actually, I was noticing when we were watching, because we rewatched the first episode, that the opening credits are kind of like that, like the cover art. So I kind of appreciate that. The cover art, it's... It I don't want to overstress the comparison, but it's not dissimilar to uh, Dave McKean's cover art on the Sandman series. It's that uh, kind yep. of slightly abstract um, approach to to co to cover art that's more about giving you a feeling of what's inside tone, than yeah. than telling you what's actually going to happen. Yeah, setting a kind of dark, mysterious tone. Yeah, a little traumatized. Yeah, I really like it. Um, much more so than the art that's actually in the book. Yep. yep. <laughs> <sighs> so I think we can agree on that. I think we definitely do. Um, so I think that'll about wrap us up on that one. So, I, and, and I do, if you only know Jessica Jones through the TV series, I think this is worth reading. Realize that you are going to get a different experience, and if a big part of your hook into... Um, Jessica Jones, the show, is Kilgrave, either because you think he's a fantastic villain, which he is, or that the addressing of that kind of trauma on a woman is handled really well, which it is. Know that that stuff does not come into play in the comic book for a while, and it doesn't come into this first volume at all. So as long as you know that going in, I think you can still get something good out of this if you mm -hmm. were a fan of the show first. Yes. Um, I think that'll about wrap that up. So uh, we're going to do a quick promotional break and then we have some listener feedback. Oh, all right. The Gen 13 Files, a monthly podcast hosted by Randy Andrews. Each month, I'll take you on a journey of reviewing Gen 13 the comic from 1994 clear through 2003. What is Gen 13? Glad you asked. It's a comic that started out produced by Image Comics and has morphed from Wildstorm clear to DC. Who is Gen 13? We have Caitlin Fairchild, ah! Roxy Freefall, wow. Grunge Chang, ah! Sarah Rainmaker, and Bobby Lane. These superhero teens encounter aliens, <laughs> evil corporations, <laughs> vicious robots, <laughs> and strange travels. They've also encountered characters from Marvel and DC. This is a fan podcast, and I'd love to talk about J. Scott Campbell and Jim Lee. I'll include comments, art references, and talking about my favorite characters from Gen 13, specifically Caitlin Fairchild. I hope you enjoy the ride and keep powered. And we're back, so we're going to address some feedback. Most of it was left on our last episode, which was covering Thor, Goddess of Thunder, Volume 1. Uh, first bit of feedback uh, we have from Ryan Daly of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. 
He said, I've read these issues recently and I enjoyed them a lot. One of the problems I anticipated you addressing was the status of the villains, because while this may be the first story of the Goddess of Thunder, it's like the sixth volume in Jason Aaron's continuing run. He's been working with Malekith and Agar slash Roxon, uh, that's the Minotaur and that company he runs, Okay, uh, yeah. for a while. It sucks when a book says volume one, but there has clearly been a lot of backstory and setup that isn't given in this version. Uh, if you hated Malekith in the Dark World or just forgot him like Liz did, Aaron, <laughs> has, <laughs> Aaron has a lot of fun making him a serial murdering sorcerer, basically Thor's Joker. I might have fallen asleep through most of Malekith in the second Thor. It was not my... There There wasn't a lot to keep me... I asleep. didn't regret seeing that movie, but it's it's way down towards the bottom of, of Marvel's output. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and, that, and that's a valid point. Whenever you get a volume of anything that has been an ongoing series, even if it is Mark Volume 1, if nothing else, it's going to be doing callbacks and tie-ins to the greater universe, whether it's Marvel or DC, that you might end up not getting. Mm -hmm. That's unfortunately kind of the nature of the beast. Yeah. Uh, next comment comes to us from Chris Franklin, also of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He says, I will be honest. I kind of look at most of these switches with a sideways glance because I've seen a lot of this before. A big drastic change with someone new in the costume for a few months, then back to status quo. Sometimes it makes sense. Sam Wilson, the Falcon, as Captain America, fine by me. Other changes, sometimes they feel very forced, and yes, I do think sometimes these characters would be better served as new entities altogether. But, having said all that, the very nature of Marvel's Thor and his hammer and it being reliant on the bearer's worthiness makes this a very interesting idea to explore, and I have heard it was handled very well. I did learn who the new Thor was, and that also makes the whole thing work better for me as an old comic fan. Glad to hear you two enjoyed it. I will have to check it out. My wife, Cindy, is also a children's librarian, so I'll have to see oh. if they have this trade at our local library. We do not have Thor yet in there. I will say we are, for the ones that we've discussed, we have Miss Marvel, um, and I think we will. We don't have it, but I know the local middle school, high school that's in our disp in our supervisor union has Squirrel Girl. I just saw that they got that. And we might get Squirrel Girl as well. And obviously we have like El Dapo, we have Ghost, we have Roller Girl, a lot of the things that I've discussed and have talked about my students liking or reading. So, so next comment. Uh, this is from Gene Hendricks of uh, The Hammer Strikes and I knew Gene was going to have things to say about this because he is kind of the... He is well known as the Thor expert, not just in comics, but in terms of Norse lore. It's pretty much his thing. So Gene says, Allow me to preface my comments by saying that I haven't read these issues mainly because I'm not reading any new comics. Now, my thoughts. Some of these are nitpicky, folks. I'm going to... That's, that's Nathaniel interjecting, but we'll get there. Uh, number one, the name of the giant... Laufey is pronounced Laufey. So it's not Luffy, unfortunately. I know you preferred that. <laughs> that was more fun to say. But yes, we should pronounce it correctly. Uh, Freya is not Odin's wife. That is Frigga, or Frigg in the lore. Freya is a completely separate goddess and has different responsibilities, but what should I expect from a company that can't seem to remember that Odin had two brothers, not one, and he isn't the Midgard serpent? <laughs> Sorry, but fear itself is a really bad take on the Norse gods. 
I'll have to take your word on that, Jean. That's a story I haven't read. Yes. And, yeah, I was having a hard time remembering my Norse mythology. So thank you for straightening that out because it was confusing. Uh, number three, Odin in the lore is not someone to be emulated, but he isn't an outright jerk. He also go he often goes outside the bounds of what should be done in polite society, but always with the goal of of staving off Ragnarok. This doesn't mean he doesn't get his comeuppance, but at least he has good reason. Um, and there is then a link to uh, episode thirteen of Gene's own show where he kind of digs into that topic a bit more. So if people want to hear more on that, um, there is a link in that comment on the Fire and Water podcast website. Uh, number four, I don't have a problem with the woman getting the power of Thor. I think that's a great way to mix it up. What I have a problem with is that she took his name. Nor Thor is not a title. It's a proper name. It would, <laughs> it would be like a new librarian coming in to replace Liz and saying, I have your job down, so my name is Liz and you have to call yourself something else. Uh, add to that the subtext here. It may not be intentional, but it seems like they're saying that a woman can't wield this power unless she takes on a male identity. Uh, Beta Ray Bill, and in case um, listeners don't know, he is an alien who has sometimes been able to wield the hammer, mm -hmm. didn't call himself Thor once he gained the power. So why does Jane Foster have to take on that name? Um, oh, I know that Eric Masterson was called Thor, but that's because he was actually uh, impersonating a banished Thor and trying to convince people that nothing was wrong. Again, I got to take your word on that, Gene. It just rubs me the wrong way that they couldn't give her a new superhero name and call the book The Power of Thor or some such. Um, sorry for the long post, but as a heathen, um, and he's not using that superfluously, that's a capital H, practicing heathen, uh, and fan of Thor comics, I felt I had to comment on this stuff. I think actually I... I don't know how wholeheartedly I agree with the, the name thing, but I will say that there's a certain validity to the argument that Gene is making and his suggestion to call it something like the power of Thor would have solved the publishing reason for calling her Thor, which is that you you name you use a name that readers People know, know. Yeah. otherwise they don't buy the book. Mm -hmm. So he I think he does have a point that there are ways to have gotten the name on the book without having her actually be called Thor. Mm -hmm. I still kind of like that she is, but I think he he words that he point better than I than I've seen yeah. it worded before. Because oftentimes people making that point are making it. Well, he in, makes it clear he's not he's not taking issue with the fact that there's a woman wielding the hammer. It's just that there's a woman wielding the name as yes. well as the hammer, which. And I think he makes valid points. It's not something that personally bothers me, but maybe just calling her Goddess of Thunder or something. Though, because, you know, Jane is not a superhero name. <laughs> Jane, Goddess of Thunder. Well, like, I mean, we, doesn't really we can always go with Spider-Man's suggestion, Lady Hammerpants. I like, yes. So we will now refer to her as Lady Hammer. No, we won't. <laughs> no, we won't. Um, <laughs> but thanks, Spidey. And thank you, Jean. <laughs> Uh, there was a bit of a back and forth between him and Tim Price on some of those points. I'm not going to go through all that, but if people are curious how that conversation went, um, again, it's uh, it's all up on the site. And speaking of Tim, uh, he left a comment as well saying, Another great episode. I just read these issues over the summer on the Marvel Unlimited app, which I love. I've been very intrigued with the new books that have made big splashes. Unfortunately, I already knew Thor's identity from reading all new, all different Avengers, but that didn't spoil my enjoyment here. 
The mystery, the thought balloons, the sound effects rendered in the artwork, all wonderful. I completely agree that Agar makes no sense as a CEO. I could buy an explanation that he has mental powers that coerce people to work for him in spite of knowing that he'll absolutely kill them on a whim, but the writer has never suggested that he has any powers like that, so no. He's just an over-the-top villain attempting to personify greedy corporations and failing to be tempered by any realism total overkill. Uh, in regards to research, the charm of your show is the fresh eyes. It's nice to hear fresh perspectives from of first-time readers. My daughters fall into the same vein. I don't want to make reading work where you have to prepare before even starting or need me to explain everything in order for it to make sense. They should be able to jump in and be entertained, and your show captures that. So my vote is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's basically him pleading us not to uh, do excessive research ahead of time, which is fine because i just don't and, and i don't always have the time and it's it's like it's a rabbit hole of research because if i look up one thing then i get intrigued by something else and then i follow that and then it's two hours later and i've only read like five pages so yeah yeah and tim later actually kind of clarified he said i meant to lay off research before reading the book after reading it and before recording the show liz can go to town <laughs> thank you <laughs> um, and Tim also left a comment on our earlier episode on Nimona. Yay! I love Nimona so much! Um, and there he commented, Nimona was a delightful read, as you both noted. The, character, the characters are so interesting. It's easy to give them the standard labels, bad guy, good guy, sidekick, but the book reveals a surprising depth and history, so they transcend fitting into a neat box. About Nimona's body type. One... I love it. Two, she's cunning. I almost believe she intentionally keeps a form to make people underestimate her. Maybe. Ooh, I like that idea. Maybe I'm giving the character too much credit, but again, nope. that's falling into the trap of underestimating her. <laughs> Yet another angle that makes this book so good. Uh, if it wasn't for the outright murderiness, I'd have shared it with my daughters by now. So I appreciate Liz Liz's take on appropriate age. So maybe it's time to give it a try. Yeah, I love this show. Thank you, Tim. Aw, thanks, Tim. And thank you, everybody, who has commented. And if you want to comment or you want to see how uh, more of these conversations played out where I didn't uh, read all the back and forth that went on in the comments, um, you can go to fireandwaterpodcast.com where the show, that's the best place to leave comments for the show, but you can also hit us up on Twitter and all these other things. But we've got all that in the outro, so you'll hear it then. And next month, we are going to take a crack at Batwoman. No, 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 no. So uh, we'll see you folks in a month for that one. Bye. Bye. Punch Like a Girl is a Council of Geeks production. This show is presented on the Fire and Water Network, and feedback can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at punchlikeagirl1. The theme music is composed and recorded by Erica Dreisbach, whose other works can be found at ericaricardo.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye! Bye!